dance friends, and welcome to the Dance Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. I'm Courtney Escoyne. And I'm Lydia Murray. We are editors at Dance Media, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about a new study that shows how COVID-19 has changed performing arts audiences in ways both disheartening and also encouraging. Recapping the standout dance moments of MTV's strange but fascinating pandemic-era VMAs. Highlighting Hayden Moon, a transgender Irish dancer who's working to make Irish dance more inclusive. And hearing from Amanda Morgan, a Pacific Northwest Ballet Corps member who's become a real leader in the fight for diversity, equity, and inclusion in ballet. Um, But before we get into all of that, do you think it's fair, Courtney and Lydia, to say that this recording session has become like a weekly form of therapy for us? Oh, yes. Basically, yes. <laughs> it's it's nice to take the screaming inside my heart and, well, not scream about it on the podcast because that would be, that would be <laughs> bad audio, but. Yeah, I think having a chance to hash out complicated news stories together and, oh, wow, the news is just unrelentingly complicated these days. Um, or even just as Courtney was saying, you know, being able to scream collectively, metaphorically speaking, into the void about everything instead of screaming into it alone. We find that comforting. Um, so if you'd like to scream into the void with us <laughs> um, or, or you know, have a more civilized discussion, please give us a follow on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit because we do want to hear your thoughts. We want you to get in on this therapeutic conversation, too. So now, as usual, it is time for our dance headline rundown, which is just a brief look at some of the week's noteworthy news stories. Uh, Lydia, do you want to start us off? The full cast of this season of Dancing with the Stars has been announced, and it is intense. Backstreet Boys AJ McLean, Tiger King's Carol Baskin, actress and author Sky Jackson are some of the celebrities involved, along with Nelly, the rapper, of course, uh, and Olympic figure skater Johnny Weir. So we are certainly in for an interesting season. Hashtag 2020. And I get more bonkers. Um, The American Guild of Musical Artists and the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society jointly released a playbook for safe return to work that explicitly addressed the particular needs of dancers and choreographers. It was developed in consultation with medical experts and will continue to be refined as more information and data becomes available. A good first step towards getting back to work. Yes. Blackpool Dance Festival, which is one of the most prestigious competitions in ballroom dance, will be held online this year due to COVID-19 safety restrictions. That is such a big deal. It is. It began in 1920. It's kind of like arguably the Olympics of ballroom dance. And now it's moving online. So this is definitely unprecedented. And it'll be really interesting to see how this goes. For sure. Uh, Hungarian ballet dancer Istvan Rabovsky passed away at age 90. He and his first wife, Nora Kovac, became the first highly publicized dance defectors from the Soviet bloc when they fled from East to West Berlin in 1953 and were responsible for introducing ballet audiences in the West to the Soviet's athletic style well before Rudolf Nureyev made his famous leap. An I-Align Dance Company in Greensboro, North Carolina is gathering, refurbishing, and distributing laptops to local schools in need. The Guilford County School District has ordered over 79,000 laptops, but due to production and shipping delays resulting from COVID-19, schools won't be able to receive the devices for several weeks, so I-Align is stepping up to help fill that gap. 
In more television news, producers of Strictly Come Dancing, which is British dancing with the stars for our non-Anglophiles, uh, are at work on a new dance show for the BBC with the working title Dance Crush. It'll pair professional dancers of novices to learn routines, and this is where stuff gets wild. They're going to see if their chemistry on the dance floor can spark a romantic relationship, or at least be enough to land them a date. I have so many questions. Yeah, I have Just questions so many. too. And Facebook's AI team has developed a new system that creates original choreography for any song that a user feeds into it. So the dance routines are designed to be synchronized and surprising, which, according to Facebook, are the two main criteria of a creative dance. Equal parts interesting and terrifying. And Kyle Abraham penned an essay for USA Today talking about the ways his choreography speaks to the issues faced by his communities as a black gay man. He wrote about how he has created dances that translate those experiences into universally relatable themes and in so doing engender empathy in the audience. Uh, I'd like to encourage everyone to give it a read. It's as approachable and thought provoking as any of his choreography. Yeah, we will link to that in the episode description. I feel like We've said it before. We'll just keep saying it forever. Representation matters. And also, we love you, Kyle. And we love Kyle forever, too. Um, so in our next segment, we want to talk about a new study released this week that looks at how performing arts audiences have changed since the pandemic began. So the consulting firm TRG Arts analyzed data from 260 performing arts organizations in the U.S. and also in the U.K. and Canada. Um, some of what they found was not great, like the fact that unsurprisingly, ticket sales have fallen 90% overall in recent months. But the study also revealed an interesting shift in the demographic makeup of arts audiences. They appear to be getting both younger and more diverse. So older audiences saw the greatest decline in ticket sales. Uh, the proportion of subscribers who were part of the silent generation decreased from 29% before COVID to 17%. Millennial audiences doubled their proportional purchase, um, 4% to 9%. Um, there's also been a reduction in the average age of bookers, single ticket buyers for the 2020-2021 season were more ethnically diverse, um, and there was a 2.9% decrease in white bookers compared to the previous year. Uh, so I had a couple of thoughts about this. Uh, one, if you're feeling surprised at the news that millennials have been significantly increasing their donations, here is a gentle reminder that despite that generation's consistent infantilization in the popular imagination, <laughs> I am 26 years old. I represent the youngest edge of that group. And we're adults, even if we have less generational wealth. And despite that, I've been watching my peers make deliberate choices about supporting the work that they want to see in the world. Mm hmm. I, yeah, I, I have sort of points on opposite sides of this to make. Um, the first one is that we have to take this with a, a grain of salt because what's really driving most of this change is older white patrons disengaging. That's the vast majority of the shift. And it's a delicate situation um, because, you know, TRG actually gave an example of the risk involved in not continuing to woo older patrons. Um, for one of their clients, I think they said for every 1% loss in audience from the boomers and the silent generation members, the organization lost $33,000 in annual revenue for every 1% gain in participation from millennials and Gen Xers. They only realized a $7,000 gain. So it's a little bit scary. That said, this is one of those moments where it feels like stripping things down to the studs in terms of programming suddenly feels more realistic um, because all accepted wisdom about what sells and to who is kind of out the window. So it does seem like a moment to start thinking about programming that's more inclusive, to give the younger audiences that are currently more engaged 
art that reflects them and their stories, programming to the audience that you want rather than the audience you think you have. Well, and I think it's also worth keeping in mind that I think we're only just getting past the just getting through it phase Mm -hmm. and more and just beginning to get into the intentionally planning ticketed digital seasons and events phase. So like I'm thinking of like Ballet X, Wim Wim, Pacific Northwest Ballet, organizations that had plans for, you know, live stage performances in the next year and have completely pivoted that so that it's designed for digital consumption and done it in what seems at least at the outset where we're standing right now to be a really smart way. So I suspect after this fall season, we're going to have some data that is much more indicative and very interesting. The dance world's been talking about figuring out ways to how do we maintain older donors and not alienate them while also courting younger audiences. And this has been a discussion point for years and years and years. And now we are facing the biggest possible test case that'll have huge implications for what the landscape looks like once we can safely gather again. Yep. Retweet, retweet. Um, So shifting in our next segment over to the commercial dance world. Uh, MTV hosted its annual Video Music Awards on Sunday night, and this year we got the pandemic edition of the show, which was not broadcast live from the Barclays Center, as was announced back in June, but instead mostly taped at a bunch of different outdoor locations across New York City. And I have it New York City in quotation marks in my notes here because apparently some artists didn't fly into New York, but instead used faux NYC backdrops. And you know what? I respect that. Everybody stay safe. Do what you feel comfortable with. Um, but the unusual format actually seemed to inject some new energy into an event that, frankly, in recent years has felt less and less relevant. It allowed for better overall production values and also for some really great dancing. Yes. Um, this year's VMAs were supposed to be live, but most of the red carpet interviews, performances, award presentations were filmed days in advance, and there were uh, strict social distancing protocols in place. Some of the dancers' performances included Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande, Doja Cat, who performed Say So, replete with TikTok choreography, Chloe and Hallie, and last but not least, BTS, who took home the award for Best Choreography for their single, On, which debuted in February, which feels like a complete lifetime ago in the before times. Uh, for choreography, um, the lab, including Sienna Lalau and BTS's choreographer Son Sung Duk, took home that award. Um, The group performed Dynamite, which recently shot to the top of the Billboard Hot 100, uh, making them the first all-South Korean act to achieve that. Um, One thing that I want to point out about the performance that I really loved um, was that often in U.S. award show performances, BTS hasn't really gotten the best camera work, in my opinion, um, at least compared to what they typically receive in Korean award shows. On Western award shows, there's a lot of panning back to the audience and showing the reactions, which can kind of feel like some sort of attempt to justify BTS's presence on the show. Like, hey, look at all these people who think these guys are cool, when they can really fully stand on their own as artists, um, and then some. I did like message Lydia just being like oh my gosh they're wearing these beautifully fit suits and they're dancing this well and oh no am I about to become a k-pop stan what's happening to me (laughs) like they have set the new aesthetic and performance particularly in terms of dance like they have set the new standard if you cannot meet this aesthetic and dance this well then I I just I don't want to hear about it do we want to talk about Lady Gaga too because that was such an epic performance (sighs) 
Here's the thing about Lady Gaga, and I feel like I've been saying this since I was in middle school, like, watching her early days and, like, rise. Like, she is a performing artist at heart, and that has always been true of her, and she's always come to life in such a spectacular way in these live award shows, and I loved watching the way she took advantage of this, yes, we can pre-film this format, um, but still giving that just... 100% no holds barred nothing's too weird nothing's too out there performance it was oh it was electrifying yeah I mean nine full minutes of Gaga with a little bit of Ariana Grande on the side like I just love her complete commitment to every aspect of the performance mm -hmm. from the choreography by Richie Jackson which was kind of fantastic to the costuming different masks for each outfit thank you for making masks a part of of your fashion in a way that made sense. Yes. Um, yeah, I just feel like at an award ceremony where some people almost literally phoned it in, like cough Taylor Swift, that's the <laughs> fact that she showed up so completely. It, she won the whole night for me. I also just think like looking at the VMAs, it's like, look, if any award show is going to understand how to put on a damn good show within the confines of the digital sphere, you'd have to assume the one celebrating excellence in music videos would be it, right? Yeah, but it was interesting to watch the creative teams behind all of these performances navigate the challenge of putting together something that A, felt true to the spirit of the original music video or videos, B, had the same buzzy energy as like a regular live award show event even though it wasn't done live in a theater, like basically make a new music video that nods to the first one, but reads at least a little as a live performance. Like what even is 2020? They were taking some cues, I think, from the successful remote BET awards and that they mm. were able to make this large digital collage feel cohesive and communal in the way that regular award ceremonies, like for all of their flaws, do. Um and I think that sense of communal celebration is actually what's missing from a lot of the dance happening online right now, which almost always feels like it's occurring in a bit of a vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we agree. So I guess when it comes to pandemic performance, we still have a lot to figure out. But maybe we've gotten a handle on the pandemic awards show. Maybe. Almost. Someone, someone page the Academy Awards. Make sure they're taking <laughs> notes. So in our next segment, we'd like to talk about a trans activist who's fighting for change in a part of the dance world that has historically been governed by very restrictive gender binaries. Hayden Moon is a competitive Irish dancer from Australia who came out as transgender in 2017. And in his efforts to compete in Irish dance as a man, he came up against many obstacles. And a profile in Dance Magazine this week describes his continued efforts to make the world of Irish dance more inclusive. So I do feel like we should give a disclaimer at the start of this. Uh, none of us are experts in Irish competitive dance. Um, yes. It's not our area, but um, Hayden is absolutely incredible. Um, he came out as trans at the age of 23. Um, his teacher at the time told him, no, you still have to compete in the women's section and you have to go by your dead name, which is just messed up on so many levels and if i start ranting about this i'm not going to stop so i will move on uh he switched schools found a more competitive teacher and that school uh helped him get a pro bono lawyer in order to get rules changed at the competition so that he could compete as a man 
And doing so, you know, isn't just allowing him to be who he really is and do the thing that he loves, but it's also going to make a huge difference for um, transgender dancers who want to compete in this very specific and ruled by the gender binary art form. Yeah, again, caveat, I am far from an Irish dance expert, as Courtney established. But because the form is so gendered, performing as a man meant relearning for him a lot of the technique. I mean, he talks about dancing in heeled shoes rather than soft shoes, you know, all of a sudden being asked to make noise and get down into those heels Mm -hmm. instead of staying up on his toes and trying to keep quiet. You really have to relearn so much of the form. You know, to make an analogy to an area of dance that I think all three of us are more familiar with. It's very in ballet, you know, you're taught Mm -hmm. very much as a woman that everything is very lightweight. You're never heard. Everything's very delicate. Whereas um, the rhythm of what you do in the male steps is very different. And so I imagine like that mental shift and that physical shift is probably quite similar in terms of you have all of this uh, knowledge that lives in your body that you're then tweaking just enough that it's gonna kind of mess with you a bit so all that being said um as mentioned you know this is an art form that has traditionally been very concerned with the gender binary and this is progress and the beginning of progress i cannot help but wonder what about gender non-conforming artists uh, who don't fit neatly into that binary mm-hmm. how can there be a place for them within this art form as well small steps Still more progress to be made. So Hayden is now offering support for people going through similar experiences. Um, He co-runs the fantastic Intersectional Irish Dancers Instagram page, which is at Intersectional Irish Dancers. We'll link to that in the episode description. Pushing for further change and inclusion in the Irish dance world. Hayden, thank you for being you and being out and being proud and pushing for change in this art form that we all love so much. Uh, And here's to continuing to push for intersectionality in our entire field you're here yes so now we have the next installment in our voice memo series and this week our message is from amanda morgan who's a dancer with pacific northwest ballet um, morgan first joined pnb as an apprentice in 2016 and entered the corps the following year she is currently the only black ballerina in the company and she's become an important voice in the dance world's ongoing reckoning with systemic racism. She's been active in protests both online and in Seattle. And she's also busy now preparing for PNB's upcoming all digital season. Um, you'll hear more about all of that in her memo. So here she is. Hey there, Dance Edit listeners. My name is Amanda Morgan, and I'm a Corps de Ballet member at the Pacific Northwest Ballet. Three weeks ago, I came back to PNB, and we slowly started bringing some dancers back, and I was one of those dancers. Honestly, if you want to know the whole spiel, coming back, like, I have to, like, walk to work, so I walk 45 minutes in the morning to the studio. We have to have a yoga mat and our mask, obviously. Uh, We fill out a questionnaire every single time before we go in the building. I have a pod of uh, three other dancers with me, um, which actually is really fun. But it is sad because you don't get to see all of your friends in the company. But I guess I'm just very happy to be dancing right now and, um, yeah, moving again. Like actually being able to move in a big space that has been really, really fun. Now we're getting ready for our uh, digital season, all digital season. So I am, I'm obviously very excited about that. I think I've always wanted some way for people to just be able to buy a ticket, no matter where they are in the world and just be able to see dance. And um, so I think it's really great that we're doing this and I think it's going to change the dance world a lot. Um, 
I'm personally like getting ready to do Red Angels, like just a solo from it, which I haven't done since I was like 21 is my first principal role in the company. So it's going to be really fun to revisit that. And I'm actually preparing to choreograph um, my first piece ever on the company for uh, an additional digital work that will happen in our Rep 2 series. Um, so that's really what I've been up to. It was kind of a blessing in disguise for the pandemic to happen to me because it really helped me realize my own power and my own gifts and talents. I'd been um, choreographing a lot. Um, I'm choreographing, I choreographed for um, Seattle Dance Collective and did a couple little um, small projects on the side um, in addition to that. And I think that really helped me to get through this time and just connecting with people um, during this time has been really great too. Uh, me and another dancer in the company, Cecilia Iliasu, started a mentorship program for the students in the school at PMB. And I think that was probably one of the best things to come out of the pandemic because I'd been wanting to do that forever, um, growing up in the school at PMB myself. Um, so to be able to talk with all the students and hear their opinions and their voices, and uh, they're all such intelligent and um, inspiring kids. So yeah, that's kind of what the pandemic uh, has done um, in, a, in a positive way for me. Looking at systemic racism and, I mean, just how that affects the dance world, I think I've I've always had to be like that. I've always been like that. I think, you know, I'm so happy that so many other dancers are talking about it more so now. I think it's something that needs to continuously be talked about. We need to continuously hold people accountable, even though it brings up some tender spots for people and, you know, brings some stuff out of the woodwork. I think... I've been wanting this to happen forever, you know, and so I'm just so happy that it's happening now because I'm hoping that the generations after me of dancers of color, you know, will have it a little bit easier than what I did or, you know, what so many people who paved the way for me um, before uh, I even started dancing. Now, with dismantling white supremacy, it's not enough to just post Black Lives Matter or even post a statement, like that's great. That's a starting point. But now you need to continuously talk about it. You need to, you know, hire a consultant or hire a racial equity supervisor and like actually have someone there that can look over these choices that you're making, what you're choosing to, you know, bring into your company, what you're choosing to represent your company as, who are you hiring um, in all levels of your organization. And, you know, with that uh, racial equity work, I think that all of these things that we're talking about is ultimately going to change how we go about making decisions in the dance industry, hopefully, you know, hopefully we're going to see more choreographers of color and more diversity when it comes to the LGBTQ community, um, having, you know, indigenous people as well in these, um, you know, high up roles um, in arts organizations, I think. It, I mean, it can only get better, in my opinion, and hopefully we won't see so much cultural appropriation or, you know, racist ballets. I'm hoping for that. I think that people are, we're really going to need to adapt if, um, you know, we want to keep ballet alive. The one thing I can say about, you know, what dancers should do right now and how to support each other is to just check on each other, make sure people are doing all right. I had a great conversation with one dancer 
um, that was also coming back around the same time in a different company. And just like hearing like little things like that, knowing that someone's going through the same struggle, I think is, it makes you feel like you're not alone. And I think that's what's really important. We need to make sure to feel like we're not alone. We're in this all together and we are very much a community. Amanda, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Please, everyone, make sure that you keep up with all of Amanda's dance projects and her advocacy work by following her on Instagram at Bailarina. That's at B-A-I-L-A underscore R-I-N-A. And also be sure to visit pmb.org to find out more about the company's digital season. You do not want to miss her in Red Angels, for sure. I'm so excited to see what she does with that site-specific work she's working on. So am yes. I. Yeah. Subscribe and get into that. Okay. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. And in the meantime, keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. Bye, everyone. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, Lydia Murray, and Cadence Neenan. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those football sounds. Find out more about the Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. <laughs>